You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. We are going to be reading this morning from Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, in case you'd like to follow along. It reads, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is upon their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruined in misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Please pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for this passage of Scripture, and our trust that it is true and remains true. It was written long ago, far away, to a church that was very different from ours, but really not so much. And every word is just as true today, as relevant as it was back then. We thank you for the sermon that we're about to hear that will drive these words home. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Craig. Imagine a world where a code reader can fix your car's problem. If you don't know what a code reader is, it's that machine they plug into your car whenever there's a dashboard light. And uh, first hour, there's this guy named Randy. Maybe some of you are mechanics. The mechanic I go to is Randy's trustworthy. If you need a good mechanic, he just lives a minute away. He's got a code reader. You go over there. If your car's giving you problems, he plugs it in and he tells you, 
oh, it's a CX9 code. That's all it is. Just need a catalytic converter. Get it fixed. But imagine if the code reader actually could fix the whole problem. Wouldn't that be great? I got a million dollar idea, guys. Make the code reader not just tell you the problem, but fix it. I don't want to be bothered with having to go do all that stuff. Uh, Amazon has these things for sale. If they could fix my car's problem, I would have bought one. Wouldn't that be great? Or differently, imagine if a biopsy could diagnose and heal. Wouldn't that be great? Kids, if you don't know what a biopsy is, it's when you go to the doctor, they take a little bit of tissue, they run it through some laboratory tests to see if you're sick or how sick or what's wrong with you. Nobody's ever come up to me and said, oh man, tomorrow, I can't wait, I'm getting a biopsy, yeah. No, I mean, if that's you, you're psycho, that's weird. No, nobody does that, myself included, I don't want a biopsy unless the biopsy could heal. I got a million dollar invention idea, probably a billion with the code reader thing, and I think I just solved the whole problem with the insurance industry if I could make that one work. If any of you know how to make a biopsy heal people, I'd like a cut. But of course, that's not what a biopsy does. All that a biopsy does is tells you the problem. It doesn't heal you. We all know that's not the way the world works, but imagine you have a friend who is convinced code readers can fix your car and a biopsy heals your body. Imagine. What would you say to them? You're crazy, is what you should say to them. It's not the way the world works. This morning in our text, Paul is going to speak to Christians in the Roman church. It's 2,000 years ago. It might feel very removed from us, but, but the argument he's going to make is, is parallel to this idea that a code reader could somehow fix your car or that a biopsy could heal you, what Paul's going to show the Jewish Christians in the Roman church is the Old Testament law is not designed to diagnose and heal. It's only intended to diagnose. What we're going to do then is see Paul who's been making an argument from, since chapter 1, verse 18 in Romans, he's going to land the plane on this part of his argument, trying to help those in the church realize you all are thinking the Old Testament law is doing something it was never designed to do. Paul's telling the Jewish Roman Christians, if you think the Old Testament law can save you, you're crazy. As crazy as somebody who thinks a code reader can fix your engine or a biopsy can heal your body. There are two points in the sermon today that will follow Paul's logic, followed by a third and final point that's going to push this idea home to us today. If you're not accustomed to uh, being here at Mill Creek or listening to the sermons the way we preach them here, we try to take whatever the text says and then mold the sermon around it. So the first two ideas are straight out of Romans 3, and then the final one is, is my pastor's heart trying to help us understand how this text comes alive to us today. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open to Romans 3? If you need a copy of the scriptures, you might find some in the little seat backs. If you want to use your device, Romans 3 in the English Standard Version, ESV. 
I encourage you to open up the text so that you know that in writing this sermon, I didn't just sit in my office and go, hmm, what do I feel like saying this time? Nope, we're just looking at the text, wanting the sermon to match the text. First big idea if you're taking notes, just so you know, having the law does not make you the exception. Just so you know, having the law does not make you the exception. If, if you've got your finger there in 3-1, I want to make sure you have Paul's argument in mind. If um, you haven't been here for the last couple weeks, it'd be helpful for you to remember that in chapter 1 of Romans, Paul begins by saying, hey, Roman church, I'm a trustworthy ambassador of the gospel. Uh, Roman church, you can trust me. I know what I'm talking about. He's offering some credentials and validation. Uh, He's authenticating who he is. And then he tells them how much he loves them. And the whole reason Paul's doing this is because he's about to drop the hammer on them. And and if you're going to come at somebody, you better trust you've got some relational capital first. So that's what Paul does. And then in 118, he goes after the godless pagans of their time. Now, the godless pagans in their time would have left those listening to this letter with their arms crossed, smugly nodding, thinking to themselves, yeah, Paul, you go get those godless pagans. They're awful people. They would have loved 118 to the end of chapter 1, verse 32. But then in 2-1, Paul's got this gotcha moment like a rope-a-dope where all of a sudden he turns all of the camera onto the Jewish Christians and he says, you too, you too are unrighteous. And he begins just hammering them, showing them how their smug self-righteousness is just as sinful as the godless pagans. And what we've spent a couple weeks talking about is how we as Christians may be tempted to point at people not in church and think, yeah, y'all are wicked. But what Paul does is points it right back at us and go, us too, all of us are wicked. And at this point of the letter, you might be thinking, okay, man, I got the point, Paul. (laughs) I believe you. We're all unrighteous. Let's move to the next step. But he has one last argument he wants to land the plane on. And it's frankly something like a frequently asked questions, a Q&A after a plenary session. There are a few questions that some of these Jewish legalists who are inside the church are curious about. Like somebody who goes, actually, Paul, what about this other thing here? Actually, Paul, I have a question. He has several he wants to answer before he moves us in his argument in the book of Romans. And the first one is there in chapter 3-1. You can look in the text and see it. This, this question that those who are in the church, they're trying to wiggle out of the judgment of God. So they, said, they would say something like this. Well, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Paul's answer. Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. All right, what Paul's addressing are those in the church who are Roman Jews who go, but wait, God chose us as Jews. That is an ethnic group of people. God chose us as Jews, and that means something, right? Like at judgment, it's, it matters that, that he picked us and gave us the Bible, right? Paul's answer is yes. As Jews, we were entrusted with the oracles of God, which is a really fancy terminology for the Old Testament. Uh, the Ten Commandments and more. So Paul's saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
you do have this gift of having the oracles of God. So that is a benefit. Second question that follows is there in three and four. But what if some Jews were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? The answer, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. The the second question that follows on the heel of the first would be some of these Roman Jewish Christians who are thinking, well, if we got the oracles of God, if, if, if we have been given this gift, well, then how does it work that so many Jews have been unfaithful? Which, if you've never read the Old Testament, it's not, it's not just like these stories of how awesome people are. If that's the way you've read the Old Testament, you've missed the point. The Old Testament is full of people just like you and me who just fail and fail and fail. In fact, he cross-references King David, who made quite the mistake in his kingship. Psalm 51 is is King David saying sorry after he committed adultery and then had this gal's wife killed. King David, a man after God's heart. So, So Paul's point is, yes, there's been lots of Jews who've been unfaithful, but that does not nullify God's promises. God's promises are true. All right, so, so, the, so the frequently asked questions again. Do Jews have any benefit? Yes, you have the law. Does it nullify God's faithfulness? No, does it nullify God's faithfulness? Third question then, that the Roman Jewish Christians are trying to wiggle off the hook of God's judgment is in verse five. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous? to inflict wrath on us, I speak in a human way. All right, here, this was a hard argument for me to track, but I worked it out. I appreciate the time you guys give me to be in a study and try to think this thing through. It can be a little confusing. If, if it was confusing to you as you read through it, it was to me. But here's what he's saying. I got it landed. Paul's, the argument that the Roman Jews are asking is this. They're, they're saying, look, so God gave us the law. That's good. And, and our faithlessness doesn't nullify God's faithfulness. That's good. But look, since we're such awful people, doesn't that show how awesome God is? I mean, since we're such awful sinners, since that's what you said, Paul, we're all sinners, doesn't that show how beautiful and glorious God is? I mean, it's like saying, by being sinners, aren't we doing God a favor? And don't you think that's a good idea, Paul? Now, now, maybe you're thinking, Jeremy, Paul's not there in person. How does he know all these questions that they're wrestling with? Remember, Paul, for 20 years, has experience talking to Roman Christians. He goes to a new city. He goes to their synagogue. He tells them about Jesus, and he knows what kind of questions they're going to ask, and this would have been a common one. They would be saying, well, look, if you think God's going to come at us, actually, he should be saying thank you to us for all of our wickedness. Because our wickedness makes him look so good. Yeah? Verse 6. By no means. If you're a kid looking at the text, you might notice the exclamation point. Third grade taught me that's a very strong statement. Maybe something more like this. You're wrong, Jews. You're wrong. Look, look. Paul's saying, well, let me read the text. For then how could God judge the world? 
meaning we all agree God's going to judge the world, and if our sinfulness makes him look so good, he wouldn't judge anybody, but that isn't the truth. Seven, but if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? These are rhetorical questions. As some people slanderously charge us, Paul and his crew, with saying their condemnation is just. Some people thought this is what Paul preached. Oh, you think when you sin, it just makes God look good. So, so Paul and his crew and people who follow Paul's message, they just sin all the time to make God look good. Wrong. That's not how this works. In summary then, Paul's three answers in this FAQ section explain what would have been crucial for the Roman Jews. Again, you and I in 2021 might be convinced we're all sinners. That's what Romans is teaching. But, but back then, they would have thought that being Jewish or being circumcised or having the Old Testament law somehow would get them off the hook so that at judgment, God would say, oh, you know what? You are Jewish. Never mind. I won't judge you. Oh, you know what? You have the Old Testament law. You, go, you can take the, 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 the path over here. It's kind of a shortcut. You don't have to go through my judgment. Oh, you were, you were sinning because you wanted to show how wonderful I am as God? Okay, never mind, I won't judge you. Paul's saying that's not how it works. The way we could say it today is Paul's argument. The law is at, as good at saving you at judgment as a code reader would be at judgment. The law is as good at saving you at judgment as a biopsy report would be. Hey, God, I got my biopsy report. Wondered if that'd give me a pass. Look, if you're thinking that, you're crazy. Here's my code reader results, God. I wondered if I could just avoid your judgment because I have code reader. The, the law doesn't save like neither of those things can save. Paul's saying this. Hey, Jews, tattoo this in your brain. Having the law doesn't make you an exception from judgment. That there's nothing that's going to give you a pass at judgment. Well, that's Paul's point in verse 1 to 8. Let's move to the second section, verses 9 to 20. And if you're a fan of literary boxing, Paul's about to knock some suckers out, and this is his final point before transitioning in 21. Here's the big idea from section 2. Hey, just so you know, just so you know, the law says all are unrighteous before God. Verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Nope, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now, now kids, if you're looking at verse 9 and thinking, that's a different answer than verse 1. Adults, if you're thinking the same thing, you're right. Look at chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 3, verse 9, and notice they're kind of the same question, but Paul seems to change his mind at verse 9 from verse 1. I mean, the question is this, is there any benefit to being a Jew? And in verse one, Paul said, well, sure, you have the law, but then he helps them realize, well, that's not going to save us. So if the law is not going to save us, is there anything else that's a benefit of being a Jew? And the answer is no, not if it comes to escaping judgment. Ethnic Jews don't have a secret escape from judgment. There's no get out of jail free pass if you're a Jew and have the Old Testament law. But just in case, some are still trying to wiggle out of this idea that they're going to be judged. There in the middle of 10, Paul rattles off a number of Old Testament passages that operate like a crushing press. 
systematically and comprehensively destroying any final argument that the Jews might have had for thinking that they were okay before God. Just in case Jewish Roman Christians were under the impression that, that they held the moral high ground against the godless pagans in their city, Paul hammers them with what is called a katina in 10b to 18. If you're wanting to nerd out a little bit on some a theological term, here's the $5 theology word of the day. Do -do 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 -do, word of the day, katina, C-A-T-E-N-A. -A. It's when an Old Testament rabbi would pick different pearls from the Old Testament. He would string them together to make a comprehensive argument to show there ain't no wiggling out of this. Paul's got him on the hook and he's gonna land them with nine different references from the Old Testament confirming his big idea, all are unrighteous. Look in the text, middle of 10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. These must have been some stubborn people because I'm already convinced. But Paul just keeps blowing them up. 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, that's a snake, is under their lips. 14, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. 16, in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Here's Paul's point. Everybody in the world, godless pagans and self-righteous Christians who might come around to hear God's word, all are unrighteous. Verse 19 and 20, here's the summary. Paul writes, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Paul's saying, here's the benefit of the law, Jews. It shuts your mouth. I found it interesting in my study to learn that in the Old Testament, when it has this idea of shutting your mouth or silencing you, it was saying, by shutting our mouth, that's what stops injustice. When God shuts our mouth, that stops wickedness. That stops injustice, wickedness, lying, hypocrisy. This is what the law does. It stops us and holds us accountable before God, completely unjustified. Here's the cherry on top, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Here then is the point of Paul's catena, the great crescendo of Paul's argument. The law reveals sin. It shows us the problem, but it does not solve the problem. Like a code reader for a check engine light, it can tell you that there's a malfunction in your engine. Like a biopsy can tell you, here's the problem you have with your health, but none of those things solves the problem. And there then is Romans 3, 1 to 20. 
thank you, Pastor, for your great exposition of the text. I'm glad to know exactly what it says. I hope that was great for you sharing it. But what in the world does this text have to do with me today? If you're there and you're thinking to yourself, look, bro, I'm not an idiot. I've never gone to Randy's house hoping that the the engine checker would fix my engine. And I've never gone to the doctor hoping a biopsy heals me. Pastor, I've never read the Old Testament thinking this thing can save me. Okay, that's what they did, but I don't do that. So what does the text mean to me today? Oh, yes. Yeah, how does this impact us today? Sure, I grant that few of us walked in here thinking that the Old Testament law would save us. I grant that before judgment, we may not be thinking to ourselves, but God, I followed the Old Testament law. Okay, so that's not the same exact way that we think about God's judgment. But in fact, the principal problem in that church, it's the same principal problem we have in this church. The universality of sin. Sin is so pervasive. All of us have the same disease. It just looks different for different people. And it looks different across different ages. So while we're 2,000 years after this was written, give or take, the same problem is for us today. And and here then is our final point. I want to push this into us today. So I hope you can see how relevant the Bible is. Like God's word speaks and the spirit still uses it today to do work in our hearts. Spirit work. Big idea number three, just so you know, we're just like them. Just so you know, we're like them. You and I work our hardest to try to wiggle free out of judgment before God. You know, I mean, this may not be popular and, and, and you may be able to find a church somewhere in the city that's not going to talk about the judgment of God. That might make you feel good, but we're just preaching the text. And in the text, Paul's big on the judgment of God. So we're doing business with the judgment of God. And, and though it might feel unpopular, when we think of ourselves in judgment before God, our tendency is to think, well, I'm not that bad. I mean, bro, have you checked out my friend over here? Now, he, he needs some of whatever you will dish out. But me, I'm not that bad. And here's how we justify ourselves. A couple ideas. Here's some popular ways we do it. One is this. It's the rules. I think this is the most parallel to those in the text. For any of us who think that following our personal moral code or our parents' moral code or our friends' moral code. However we decide what the rules are, there are some of us in here who go, yeah, I just follow the rules and I'm gonna be okay. Now, however you decided what your rules are, I'll never know, but you've, you've decided what the rules are and if you can do them perfectly, you think you're gonna be saved before God. But may God wake you up with Romans 3.20, realizing for by following your rules, no human will be justified. See, it's, it's like this. Far too many of us grew up in a family where we thought however mom and dad raised us, well, that, that's what mean, it means to be good. And our parents just wanted us to be good. And, and, and maybe we decided some of their rules are bad, but we've adopted some of their rules. And, and that becomes the construct for how we think through our world. And, and friends, it wasn't too long ago that on a Sunday morning, if you showed up at church without nice clothes on, somebody might say, well, this is the house of God. Why, how could you show up without nice clothes on? I mean, we wear our best for God. 
as if that justifies you to wear nice clothes. Or in, or in my house where I grew up, you did not wear a hat in church, and you did not get a tattoo. I don't think I see any hats in here, so maybe that rule's still operating here. <laughs> FYI, if you want to wear a hat, it ain't going to save you. Oh, turns out, at judgment, God don't care whether you wear a hat to church. I'm sorry, Mom, I know you won't like that, but... Uh, tattoos. People are like, oh, you can't get a tattoo. That's in the Old Testament. Nope, that's wrong interpretation. But whatever the rules are, we have this tendency to think about these rules. We create these constructs and think, well, if I follow those rules, I'm going to be justified. And just like the judgmental Jews, we may adopt some rules from the Old Testament. We may even adopt some from the New Testament. We may make up our own list of rules, but what it has in common is we're all still controlled by whatever rules we're following. And whether it's rules of social norms, whether it's rules of what you can say on social media or not, whatever your rules are, if you follow your rules, you're thinking it's going to justify you. But what I'm wanting you to see is following the rules, when you get to judgment, if you look at God and you go, I know I've, I've done some bad things, but don't you see I followed my rules? I was really consistent. That won't save you. Any more than the Old Testament can save you. The Old Testament law didn't save the Roman Jews. Your rules won't save you. Salvation is not found in rules. Ah, pastor, this isn't my issue. Okay, let me try a different one. Here's a popular one. The Bible. The Bible will justify you. Did he just say what I think he said? I think he did. I, I know, God can... The devil takes good things and makes them evil. Here's how this one works. There are plenty of people who realize, I trust the Bible and it has a lot of things to say, but instead of doing business with the sin that the Bible reveals, they like to think to themselves, but yeah, I know I've got some sin issues, but let's not talk about that. Let's actually talk about how much I know about the Bible. And man, I've really read the Bible. I read it a lot. I, I have good theology, I, I know how to read the news and sift through a biblical worldview, what, what is God's truth and then what is, what is sinful lies. And man, I've just got some of this stuff on lock and that's got to count for something at judgment, right? Like when God goes to judge me, I'm going to just go, look, God, I really appreciated your Bible. Thank you for it. That's worth something, yeah? As if God's going to give you a pass because you've got a lot of Bible on memory or something? Or, or maybe it's less about personal Bible and it's more about like biblical church. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I know, I know I've got sin issues, but I don't want to talk about that because I go to a biblical church. Yeah, at my biblical church, they're real serious about the Bible and they, they don't do any of that weak sauce sermon milk stuff. No, they give me steaks there at that church. Preach through hard books of the Bible like Romans, rah, rah, rah. Yeah, my preacher, he, they got elders because that's biblical. They support missionaries, that's biblical. They're going to church plant, that's We even do study hall for kids who need a place to go. Yeah, my church so good. And at judgment, it's as if you're going to look at God and go, man, I was at that church. Like that counts for something, right? Wrong. That doesn't matter at all at judgment for your soul, this church won't save you. Your rules can't save you. The, the Bible does not save you. 
There's a message in the Bible that can save you, but just knowing the book isn't what does it. Salvation is not found apart from Jesus Christ. Final way that we may be just like the original audience. It's when we look to the culture to save us, and here's how the cultural landscape can trick us into thinking we're okay before God. Some of us have a tendency to look around the world and think to ourselves, you know what the problem is with our culture? Do you want to know what the problem is with our country? I'll tell you the problem. It's Christians. Some of us here think to ourselves, yeah, it's Christians that keep making the mistakes of creating division and all this polarization and and fighting. They think to themselves, we're the problem. The person might think to themselves in this way, you know, Christianity stuff is pretty simple. It's pretty simple. Just love others. That's the whole message of the Bible, right? Just love other people and quit being so judgmental. This person thinks to themselves, God and I are just so disappointed in all of you. <laughs> just love other people. Everything will be fine. And maybe, maybe the person in this position has a point. Maybe we should be not so judgmental. And maybe our big problem is we're not loving others like ourselves. And maybe that would lead us to be a little nicer if we're talking about vaccines or a little nicer if we're talking about presidential elections or a little nicer if we're talking about people who have different sexual preferences than it seems that the Bible explains. And maybe that's the answer. But if you think this sort of attitude or this sort of approach at judgment is going to save you, a judgment that you would say, God, I tried to tell these people around me to quit being so nasty. It won't save you. It's just as deadly. Not to mention so self-righteous that you think you, you, you have the answer. And, and if this is you, you should know, you should know, I'm, I'm not going to get a soapbox on this, but you should know when the Bible says don't judge, like I know that our culture tells us that's what the Bible says, don't judge. Some say that's the, that's the most memorized Bible verse for people who aren't Christians. Yeah, y'all aren't supposed to judge. That's in the book somewhere, yeah. That's not what the Bible says. In fact, you can look it up. It's Matthew 7, 1. If you have more questions, I'd be thrilled to talk to you. I don't want to derail us off the rest of the sermon on this point, but you should know that, that that's taken out of context. And in fact, the Bible teaches that if you're a part of the church, if you're a covenant member here, we are supposed to judge sin inside the church. I was talking to my buddy. He's still trying to figure this thing out. And he goes, for real? You, that's what the Bible says is used. Christians are supposed to judge each other inside the church. It says that you're supposed to do that. I said, yeah. And he goes, your job's awful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, it comes with a job, but that's what the text says. And I'm under judgment too, just from other Christians. But, but, the, but the Bible doesn't say we're not supposed to judge. Actually, Christians are supposed to judge. We are supposed to call sin what it is. More on this in August. We're going to go through a sermon series on conflict resolution in Matthew 18. I hope you're here. Love to explain this more. What is more, though, and more to the point, the Bible never pretends that loving others is the big idea of Christianity. Man, and if I could get a 30-second spot on on. on some TV channel at some point, and they said, could you help us unwind one of the problems with Christianity? I'd say, the Bible never says the big idea is love others as yourself. 
Wait, wait, wait. I thought Jesus said that in Matthew 22. Oh, he says something like that. You can look it up if you want. Matthew 22, 36 to 40. But what Jesus is answering is a question about the law. And this is going to come all the way home. So track with me here. The Pharisees ask Jesus, what is the most important law? There's like 613 of them. What's most important? And Jesus says, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the point. First, if you're going to pick one big idea that all Christianity should be about, well, you can't just say it's about loving others. You forgot the whole love God part. Love God, which means you're obeying him perfectly. How interesting. The culture never says that we're supposed to love God first. They just picked the loving others part. But yes, Jesus said you're supposed to love others. That's the second most important. Well, the second most important what? Law. That's the second most important law. When Jesus breaks it all down, maybe you listen to Caleb and there's this song. I mean, when it all gets down, just love God and love others. Love God, love others. That's the law. And if you were tracking in Romans 3, 1 to 20, what did we just find out about the law? It can't save you. Meaning, if you go before God at judgment, and he says, why should, do you deserve to be saved? And you said, God, I just loved God, and I I loved you, and I loved others. And he'd say, did you do that perfectly? You'd have to say no. The point of Jesus is making in Matthew 22 is, we can't even do two simple commands. How are we going to follow all the Old Testament law? The law can't save. We don't even get the basic commandments right. You and I have 99 problems, and sin is a big one. Here then, we do find a connection to unity. For what unites Christians like us today? It's that the rules the Bible and our theology, our opinions about the church, the culture, none of these things will save us. The right framework won't save us. So here's then application. Here's application. Here's what I want you to walk away thinking and applying in your life. First, friends, we, like them then, need to admit we are not the exception to the rule, okay? Paul's made a big deal about judgment, And that judgment, we're not going to have a get-out-of-jail pass for anything we've done. we got to admit, before you, God, I stand unrighteous. Now, look, if you're here and you're like, Pastor, I just don't think I'm unrighteous before God, I would love to talk to you because being unrighteous before God doesn't mean that you've done every bad thing in the book. Just you've only had to do one thing one time and you're unrighteous. you got to admit You stand unrighteous before God. Even if you're really good at making up rules and being a legalist, you stand unrighteous before God. And and in fact, I can prove it, because even if you have a bunch of rules, can you honestly say you've never once, never once broken one of your rules, even when nobody was looking? So admit, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. Two, we gotta repent. Two, we gotta repent. Repent is this full-bodied Christian word and it it means a 180-degree turn. 
Repent means saying, I'm not going to be the boss of my life anymore. I want Jesus to be my boss. And whatever Jesus says to do, I'll do it. And anytime I'm not obeying Jesus, I'm going to say sorry. Even when I hate it. Even when I don't want to. He's my boss, and I've written him a blank check. So admitting your sin, it's turning from your sin, calling it what it is. Yep, that's bad, that's awful. I'm gonna turn, I'm gonna, do, I'm gonna look to obey you, Jesus. And, and that's number three, it's calling on Jesus. Would you save me, Jesus? Jesus, I am unrighteous before God. I'm, I'm repenting of my sin. My, the code reader can't fix engine problems. The biopsy can't heal me. The law can't save me. I need Jesus. For that's ultimately what's going to heal our sin problem. I mean, how does a car get fixed? How, do, how does a person find medical solutions? Through a person. We need a person to save us. And there was one who did it all. Last time in the text, if you look at Romans 3.3, 3, there was one who had the oracles of God and was always faithful. 3.3, 3, there was one whose faith did glorify God. 3.4, there was one who never lied. 3.4, one who was judged and found complete. 3.5, there was one whose righteousness perfectly displayed God's righteousness. It's not you, it's not me, it's not them, it's not Paul. But there was one, 3.6, who didn't deserve God's wrath, but received him in judgment. 3.7, one who took the condemnation of sinners, who took the evil we deserved. 3.9, one who took on flesh and yet never took on sin. And while the law only revealed the problem there was one who solved the problem there was one who was righteous there was one who sought after God one who never turned aside he is the worthy one he is the good one he is the true one. He is the lovely one. He is the one who walked the perfect path even though it led to his blood being shed. He listened to the law. He was accountable to the law and then he was crucified under the law. And though the law revealed our problem, Jesus, he solved our problem. On the third day, after being buried in a tomb, he was resurrected, proving that your and I's greatest problem can be resolved before the judgment of God for all time. Dear friend, final thought, God's judgment is coming. That's what Paul's arguing. You and I, whether you like it or not, whether it's popular in our culture or not, I want your soul to hear this. You will stand before God in judgment. And when you stand before him, you will answer for all your sins there is no excuse you will be able to make and there will be no escape. But there is salvation in Jesus and if you would call on him, he would save you. Will you pray with me? Your name saves Jesus Christ. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you would take your word and you would push it into our hearts. And I pray those who are dead in the trespasses and sins, 
would be brought to life through faith in you, Jesus Christ. I pray your word would keep doing work. Would you save? For those who know you, would you give joy? Would you get the glory? In Jesus' name, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.